Advent starts and kicks off the church year for us in many ways. Um, and one of the ways in which that um, is sort of evident for us today is that we've sort of changed our format, our singing format again. Um, it's a, it's a pentagon? Uh, it's a fair description of the shape, I think. Some, some shape like that. We wanted to do a decorative but we ran out of chairs. Um, but one of the things that we tried to do, and has always been sort of something that we desire to do, is to have us center sort of more on communion. Less on the music theme, less on the pastor and the sermon, but for the two parts that sort of make Protestant churches churches, and particularly can make Defiance Church a church in its, the larger sense, is that we're a church that, that has word and sacrament. That we read the word together, that the word is preached, proclaimed, it's something that soaks through in our service, and then we practice and seal that word with the sacrament together. And so this is an effort to sort of do that, not just in speaking it, but to do it in reality, is that it sums and moves to the center of us, the table at which we come to together. Um, and so the, the, the phrase that I use at times is when I talk to people, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to people, is that Defiance Church sort of lives as a Eucharistic community. Eucharist being Lord's Supper community. We sort of set ourselves on the practices around the table of being near each other there. And so that's sort of taking shape in physical form now. But the second thing I sort of wanted to focus on for, for this Advent and this church here, not just that, is, is this idea of prayer together. And so if you look in the bulletin this Wednesday at 7.30, we're going to start praying together here, um, having a chance for us to come together in prayer. And I have a, a sheet that has sort of a modified sort of a daily prayer, daily office thing um, that you can pick up after the service if you don't want to make it on Wednesday mornings. And so, in the Psalm series, we talked about praying Psalm 132 to start our week, to sort of bring us into this non-ancient place in the world in which we trust and know God. Um, that's sort of our Monday thing. Uh, and again, as many of you know, you don't have to listen to your pastor. Um, but I think it's a good call for us to have more corporate practices together. This Wednesday sheet is sort of focused on Advent primarily. Um, and I'll hand them out after the service if you want one, but it's a way for us to, to pray together on Wednesday mornings, and whether you do it here or whether you do it out. Because there's this notion in these texts that we read today, Jamie and Natalie read for us, is there's this awakeness and alertness that we're called to in the world. There's this awakeness, and so this, this quote from Karl Barth is one that I think of almost every time when I think of prayer, is to clasp hands in prayer. Uh, is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. That for us to have this time of prayer together here, and on Wednesdays and on Mondays if we're doing it, is a way in which the people of Defiance Church can begin this uprising against the disorder of the world. And Advent begins in this disorder. Advent begins in this darkness and struggle. Now, uh, Carla, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're... Um, all the songs in minor key, except for God with us. Yeah. Um, uh, which is why everybody hates their pastor on Advent 1. Um, we just refuse to let you be happy in the Christmas season. Um, because it's the Advent season, not the Christmas season. Um, and so we try to, to sort of bring us into O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, I had Jamie read today because she is one of the lone defenders of Ah Holy Jesus with me. Um, for me was thine incarnation. Kelly always tells me that song is horrible. It was. It's a great song. 
with somebody else. Yeah, so it's a, somebody hates a song you like. Stop, stop raining on everybody's parade. But that's common in pastoring. Like somebody hates the song that somebody else does. Um, and so we uh, we sing Awfully Jesus. We sing that song, Lower a Rose is Blooming, in these ways in which we move into a minor key when the world moves to a major key. Seems like almost every every Christmas song, Jingle Bells. Um, the ones uh, I was fixing my car with Kelly's dad today or yesterday or Thanksgiving, and he had that on a country station. And the amount of country music that is Christmas music, like that they have in their own genre, is phenomenal. And almost all of it is happy, by the way. Um, their sad songs are about breakups and trucks and other stuff like that. But, but their happy songs certainly come out in the Christmas time. Um, and so Advent has this notion of us moving into the dark, of moving into seeing the world in a different way. And this is, this is uh, we say this every year, but the 12 days of Christmas is actually counting down the days after Christmas. The church, whenever it has sort of a feasting season, the most famous feasting season in the church is the season after Easter, which is actually 50 days in which the church is feasting, and that's preceded by a season called Lent, which is a 40-day fast. So too with this 12-day feast of the Incarnation that we're anticipating in, in, uh, at the end of Advent, there's a season of sort of preparation in the meantime. And so one of the things that, that I talk about every year as we enter into Advent is what does it mean for Defiance Church to be at least a still place in the storm of chaos that tends to go from Thanksgiving all the way to the New Year? We don't have a lot we ask you to do. There is no giving campaign. There is no boxes. There is no this. And that's not to, to, to negate any of those things, but it's been my experience that the church rushes into this time where we can be still, where we can be quiet, where we can begin to discern the world in a different way by giving you a bunch of stuff to do around holidays as if you did not have enough. And so for us here, one of the values has been to not laying more burdens upon people during Christmas and the holidays, but to say, come and worship with us, come and rest in this place, knowing that I'm not going to give you another list of things to do or put you in a place of being busier than you already are, but having this time of reflectiveness in which we can sort of discern how God is being active in the world and what God has called us to. So that Advent begins in dark is, is sort of what I began with, but I'd like to talk about this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is on the back of the bulletin. A prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, one hopes, does this or that, Ultimately, negligible things. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. Now, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, if you're not familiar with him, writing from a Nazi prison where he'll die late in his life during the 1940s. Um, he's writing to one of his dear friends that this cell that he waits in in this Nazi prison is a good analogy for Advent. And what happens is, is we think of Advent in sort of this way and that we are captive to things in the world. We're captive to powers and entities and things that are much further beyond us. And the cell gives us a place where we can wait and hope. We can bide our time doing lots of different things in this place, but ultimately if we want out of this place, 
if we're going to be rescued, the help is going to have to come from the outside. So the passage that Jamie read for us this morning, it's this breaking into the house that the owner is not prepared for. Part of this is, is, is the deep truth that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because the world seems so good. The world seems, for us in 21st century America, North America, like things are going relatively fine. But to say that we exist awaiting to be released from a prison cell, that we await leaving the darkness and going into the light, that we sit and wait for the coming one to come and rescue us. It's to sort of um, dislocate us from the time we're in. We live in a time of grand celebration and feasting, nonstop entertainment, a ways in which you can pass the time in the cell pretty well. So much so that you can begin to miss and these things will begin to fade on the outside. Then you can begin to think, I mean, we've made pretty nice cells today. You can begin to think the cell is your home. That this is what you were meant for. And then when, when sickness strikes, when death strikes, when it begins to fall apart, when violence sort of spills and touches into our world, um, and you think about this through, through grand acts and small acts, the same. I mean, from, from terrorism to um, uh, the violence that can come from a neighbor from some other part of your family that's not close to you. When that touches the world or addiction touches, we begin to think that the cell needs to be remade, not that the help comes from the outside. <coughs> and so Advent, and this is, this, it always begins every year. It's taken me a while to get used to this, and I've never preached on this version of the text that began Advent, but it always begins with a grown Jesus, not a baby Jesus, not a Jesus in the womb. It always begins with a grown Jesus near the last week of his life on earth, talking about the end that's going to come. We dislocate ourselves at the beginning of Advent as much as we can. We'll go into the other readings, we'll go into Mary, we'll go into what's happening, but the first thing that kicks off Advent is this notion is that the world is not as it should be, Daniel. We are awaiting a rescue, and that rescue has been promised to us by Jesus and is coming, coming for us. And so this is, I, I have this joke that I probably said last year that maybe your memory is not as good as mine, um, so I'll tell it again, <laughs> which is there are two types of people, those who think that Advent hymns are the best hymns and those who are wrong. Um, and, and it's a joke, but, but the actual more truth of that joke is that Advent is the church the season has, or the season the church has. If the church were to exist in one sort of of the liturgical seasons, if there was one which names the, the, the current struggle and reality of the church, it's funny enough, this one that starts the church here. Advent is the season we live in. Because Advent is, is, is for us as a people is we await the return of Jesus. Fleming well, Rutledge has this great subtitle for her book that we await the once and future king. That God is going to restore this place. Incidentally enough, this, this reading that we had for us today comes from this Palm Sunday reading where Jesus is coming as king. He comes as a king who's crucified. But he is he's coming as a king in this place. And so if Advent names, I think, the continued existence of the church, 
regardless of how we might go in other seasons or times, Advent is where we always are. We await the restoration of, of this prince. We await the rescue from the self. We await being liberated. This is um, incidental because this, uh, this season has this way of turning us both ways. This is my attempt at illustrating the both ways we turn. The first is, this is a great season where a song like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel puts us in the place of Israel. We begin to um, await the birth of this king. Advent certainly leads to Christmas, the gift of the incarnation. And so in one sense, we look backwards from that place to tell the story well to us, to tell the story um, to Christians, we put ourselves in that place of captive Israel, waiting for Emmanuel to come, to come, so that we can rejoice. As Christians, we've seen that and we've known that, but part of this season, part of this time, is, is in some sense becoming like an Israel that waits for their coming king. And that's why the joy of Christmas can shine all brighter. So that's the attempt at a is it a crush? Is that what Jesus is laid in? Yes. Uh, and then we look the other way. Uh, we look into the future to the one who comes riding on a white horse yeah? um, to rescue and free us. They now make sense, right, Ruth? It's, it's a little bit there. Um, we await the one who comes to liberate us. So in Advent, we both look both ways. We look both towards the past and towards the future. It's it's um, minus sort of the Advent hymns, almost all the Christmas hymns only repeat the past. Um, all, certainly all the Christmas songs that culturally are acceptable are about sort of this past relationship. But what we look forward to, what we await, is not just this past remembrance of this one who came, but the return of this one. And that's what this Matthew reading for us is about. It's about when this time will come when God will restore all these things. So what's interesting about this passage is, well, several things. I mean, it spawned a whole publishing industry of left-behind books and everything else. Um, and I won't want to go into that today, but merely to say is that there's nobody knows the time, not even the Son of Man or angels do. Only the Father knows the time. So if somebody's selling you a book that says, I know when the end is coming, it's like only the Father knows the time. And there are signs and things that we should be paying attention to, but it's certainly the case that it's not for us to predict the end. It's not for us to definitively know the end. And so much so that it's interesting that what, the way that this is sort of set up in, in these stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, is that it's coming um, and we don't know when and you should always be prepared for it. The parables that follow after this. And, and, and Christianity um, makes this watchfulness a way of being in the world. We expect something that's coming. We expect it to be near. We expect to live our lives in a way that won't be caught off guard by it. And we cultivate within ourselves the watchfulness of when God might appear again. Not very popular in the modern world. 
But that sort of, the early church really cultivated the sense of patience and watchfulness as their way of almost being in a different way. And watchfulness, as you look at the parables in particular, becomes this way of being attentive to the world in different ways. Most notably, this, this section of scripture will finish with Matthew 25, of being attentive to the least of these. Now we could talk later about what that passage might mean in different senses, but at least this watchfulness has this way in which there will be poor, naked, um, hungry, thirsty, and the watchfulness means attending to that in some way. Watchfulness, in many ways, names the sort of alertness of what the Christians have in the world. We're to cultivate this watchfulness in us. And so no one knows the time, but only the Father. And then Jesus tells the story about Noah, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. This is how it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in, men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding their hand, now one will be taken, and the other left. The first thing about this comparison in Noah is that this, and in, in the, the Greek the word is, is closer to our word cataclysmic, this cataclysmic event will touch all things. There's a reason why Jesus goes to this story is because the notion of the flood was that it was a, a universal sort of thing. It touched all of humanity. So too with the return of Christ, this too will touch everything. It won't just be small, it won't just be this. The, 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 the next thing that's interesting about it is, is that Jesus says that they were eating and drinking and marrying and making plans as if they had no idea what was coming. In, in Noah's time, the rabbinic interpretation will do more about what the violence was like at that time of the flood, that that's what sort of caused it. But there's two things, ways I want to think about that for us. Um, if, if you want to take both interpretations, that there was violence, that there was um, partying, ways ways of making the cell nice in some ways, uh, eating, drinking, mar being married, these kind of things. If you want to count both those things, it's this um, this radical way to show up in our world is that violence, homelessness, um, depression, angst, addiction, um, war, all is in our world today. And Christians need to be the people who can attend to that even in times of joy. To say that these people were having a grand time of it, making their plans and stuff like that when the flood was coming, and to agree with, with Genesis and the rabbis that say it was a time of deep violence, is to say that they couldn't see below what their lives were doing. I mean, it's not lost on any of us that our iPhones, or any of your cell phones, Except for, I don't know, Merle, you have a dumb phone. I don't even know where those come from. But Apple and Android phones, let's just pick on smartphones for a minute. Um, all of our, our amazing technology comes from factories and places of, of labor in China and Southeast Asia that lead to people committing suicide at an unrealistic rate in those places. So, for us to eat and drink and be merry and ignore the violence inherent in that. Or to think in our own backyards. To think of the people spending time outside 
on Christmas Eve or Christmas night. It's not to say that we can't have joy, that we can't have marriages, that we can't plan for the days ahead. But Christians need to be a people who are attuned to that. It's, it's almost like they can see subterraneanly as they see what's good. They can enjoy what's before us, but they know that's not the only thing. As much as we can punt suffering to the side of our lives and never see it, as much as we can try to make ourselves immune from the violence of the world, it's not Christian for us to say that, that it doesn't exist. It's not Christian for us not to pray for that place, those places. It's not Christian for us to deny that the world still exists in those patterns. And so for Christians, it's not that, that we can't do these things, that we can't do this, but our watchfulness means we know the human cost of these things. Well, let's say you want to leave the rabbis off. Just to pick on weddings, the wedding industry, I just looked this up today, is a $72 billion industry. There's this great phrase from, from the preacher Thomas Long, which is that when a flood is coming, when a dam breaks, the breath in the attic is worth as much as the Rembrandt is. You want to survive the flood, you'll grab the raft instead of the Rembrandt. The point of bringing that up is that Christians, while we plan for weddings, while we bring life into the world, I don't think we should be stoked about the fact that it's a 17 or $72 billion industry. And making the average cost, which was funny enough broken out when I looked this up, around $30,000 for a wedding. That seems to me very high. Um, and this is to say that as we sit in watchfulness, as we sit in expectation that God will show up again, we know what has significance in different ways. A $100,000 wedding might be something we go, we should surely celebrate this, this moment, celebrate this time of people coming together and getting married. But knowing that Christ is returning, knowing that, that um, the world still exists in ways of dysfunction, maybe it's not wise to spend $100,000 on it. Um, and it gives us an appropriate sense of the worth of things. Not to be lost on that, the, the NFL is a $15 billion annual industry. My favorite one to look up was Budweiser, is only $15 billion as well, which seems to me low. Uh, but they spend $1.5 billion on advertising. And so we exist in this world in which it could be said of us, like Noah at times, that we go around marrying, eating and drinking, and having parties. And yet the reading that Brian read for us from Romans is that the time of salvation is nearer to us now than when we first became Christians. And it's time for us to put off the seeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And to be honest in our days, to go about this, and this is where this, this um, parable or this story continues, is that there are two people doing the same job in both of these instances, and yet one is taken and one is left. So, knowing and practicing this act of watchfulness is not going out and, and um, it doesn't mean that I don't have time to go into the field and do my work. I don't have time to be grinding in a handmill, right? This parable says, that both of them are doing their work. Man goes out to the field, both women are working at a, at a handmill, and yet one is taken and one is left. 
In the early church, in the immediacy of what they thought was going to be the return of Jesus, they had people who said, well, we shouldn't work anymore. We should just sit and bask and wait for Jesus to come. And yet what Jesus says in this parable is that the alertness requires you to still go through your life, to show up for work, to do these things. Now, just as a nerdy aside, not that nerdy, is that when we think about heaven, when we think about what what lots of people, I think, are reading into this passage is the rapture, and it could be that is the case. But what's funny is we're not actually told, first, the people who go onto the ark come back out onto the ark into a new earth, a baptized earth in some ways. So the people who go into the ark aren't going away, right? They're the ones staying. The two people working at the mill, it's, it's I think we can read into the text semi-confidently that the one is taken to meet the Lord. Um, that's certainly the case. But it's still as equally as possible, and maybe wiser for us to read it today, as the evil is taken away, as the one who doesn't remain is taken away, and we remain with God. God's coming to set up a renewed heavens and a new earth, to bring about new creation in a different way. And what the church since um, the 90, early 1900s has chosen is to believe that we just disappear from this place and go, this is the Renaissance imagery up in the clouds, and we sort of sit there and play music all day. And it's just lacking in biblical imagery so much of what we're expecting. So it could equally be as true, we go into the heart and meet with Jesus, and it shipwrecks on a mountain, and we're part of a new heaven and a new earth. So what's taken out of the world while two of us are working is not the one who's righteous, but the one who fades away so that we can be with Christ as he begins his work of renewal here on the earth. To say we shouldn't be just hoping to disappear all the time. Um, it's perhaps not good news for us. But this is um, the main news of sort of advent in this time is, is learning to keep watch of learning to stay awake of learning to know what time it is the time is the time we await Christ's return and what the gospel Matthew helpfully pulls for us in other passages is that the things that cause the destruction since the parables in Matthew we read 21 I think will be cast out of the world what we await in this time is not just for the Christians to be brought into the heavenly realm or brought into the time of Christ, but we await the renewal of creation in a way that says what isn't, what shouldn't be, will be finally cast out. So addiction, and violence, um, uh, exploitation, uh, human trafficking, um, uh, loneliness and depression and anxiety, things that touch our life, things that are near and far, will actually be cast out of the world. In that parable, they're cast into the fire. What we await is the restoration of these things when Jesus comes. Surely there will be trials, surely there will be difficulty, but what we await is this restoration of the things that Jesus is going to bring to the world. And so the word Kelly said to me last night, um, be joyful. It's Advent. I said, no, 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 no. I'm a math and I have to correct everything. Joy is the emotion of Christmas. Hope is the, the emotion of Advent. 
We hope in the restoration of these things. We hope that God will bring us back together. We hope and await this new creation of which we experience the first fruits of, that, but that Christ will bring the fullness to you. Amen. And so this breaking into the house that ends the parable, I love this phrase. I can't remember where I heard it from. But the, the thing that will be robbed the most on that day, I'm going to stick with this. Jesus is using uh, robbery as an analogy for when this will happen. But the thing that will be robbed the most on that day are the graves of death. The thing that will be robbed the most on that day are the things which try to take away your joy, to try to steal from you the goodness of creation. The things that will be robbed on that day are the things which distort our common humanity together and make it so that we can go eating and drinking and not be aware of the day. So to close, I'd like to close with this one thought. I haven't quite wrapped my mind around. Maybe you can in the next week. Um, I should have put it up on the slide, but it says, only those, going through this passage, only those who renounce all knowledge of the time, renounce any ability to say that this is the time when this will come, and who reckon constantly with God's intervention into the world. With God breaking into the cell, with God being with us, with Emmanuel God with us, with only those who reckon constantly with God's intervention, while trying, while trying God's intervention without trying to be in control, without trying to know that this is the time, without trying to make it happen, without trying to be in control. The way I like to say this, with learning to live in the silence without trying to be in control, can be a weight. I'll read it one last time. Only those who renounce all knowledge of the time, and who reckon constantly with God's intervention, without trying to be in control, can be a weight. Let us be the people who keep watch. Let us pray. God, we begin this season which cultivates and culminates in great joy for us with the truth about the world. We live in a disordered place. We live in a place that still awaits the breaking of your full life upon us. We live in a cell that's more uncomfortable than mine So during this season, may we become 